So, today we get to talk about the purpose of the book of Jude. In typical Roman letter-writing fashion, Jude has introduced himself, which is the first part of a, a good Roman letter. The second thing that he's done is he's introduced his audience. That's the second thing that you would normally do, and that's very common today. Jude says that he's a slave, he's a brother of James, he's Jude, he calls us the audience, the, uh, the called, the beloved, and the kept. And then what happens in a Roman letter is that you give a salutation or a greeting, and that's normally something that you would wish well upon your audience. So he says, may the mercy, peace, and love of God be multiplied to you. Last week we talked about how the mercy, peace, and love of God is multiplied, not by our own effort but by God working these things down into us. So before Jude gets to the purpose of why he's writing this letter, he wants to teach them things that are absolutely necessary for their relationship with God. Verse 1 through 2, in a way, is kind of like boot camp for the Christian life. Jude is preparing soldiers for a great battle as a commanding officer. He knows the situation out there. He knows that the kingdom of God is under attack. He knows that it's going to be an all-out war. So before he sends them into action, he spends the necessary time equipping them and training them in the things that they need to survive. And one of the truths that he equips them with that I think is so vitally important is that we will be kept by God for Jesus Christ. I think that's utterly important because when we're dealing with the issues that are going on in the church, when we're dealing with the problems that Jude's audience is facing, like heresies and false teachers, God has promised to keep the true church of Jesus Christ no matter what, which is a great comfort. And to us today, that is great importance. There is nothing, no matter what it is, there's no assignment that God could give us where we are not safe because we are being kept for Jesus Christ. He may call someone in this room to be a pastor in a place where the gospel is hated, and yet, even if you have to leave income, status, job, or anything like that, you're safe. He may call someone in this room, we don't know what the will of the Lord is, to Somalia, to North Korea as a missionary, and you will go there, and it could be the end of your life. But as you go, you are going in the calling of God, and you are promised that you will be kept safe. There may be someone in this room who is called. The Lord is laying it on you to be more vocal about your faith, and that is going to lead to pressure at work. It's going to lead to problems. It's going to lead to stress. It may even lead to termination. There's some who are here who are going to share their faith with a relative or a loved one, and they're going to lose that relationship. And we have to understand what it means that we are being kept for Jesus when we walk through this life. Because if we have a view that we're being kept for happiness, success, or relational fidelity or anything like that, then we have, we have a small view of what we're being kept for. You are not at risk so long as you understand what you're being kept for, and you're not being kept for earthly treasures, and you're not being kept for success, you're being kept for eternity. So no matter what you gain, no matter what you lose on this earth, it cannot threaten your eternal reward. And if you think about that, what could we possibly lose in light of eternity? We could lose a job, and that's a big deal, and that's hard. 
we're going to be in heaven with Jesus forever. And while we're here on earth, he's promised to take care of us. He says he knows every hair on our head. He knows every sparrow that falls to the ground. He says if you seek first the kingdom of God, then everything you need will be provided. What could we lose? We could lose a relationship. That would certainly be hard. But what relationship is, compares to the relationship that we have in Jesus Christ? We could lose our life. Paul says to live as Christ, to die is gain. Is it really a bad thing to lose your life, to open your eyes and to wake up and see Christ in all of his glory? Your last breath here on this planet will be your first glimpse of Jesus Christ. It's, if you know what you're being kept for, if you know what you're being safe or what you're safe from and what you're safe unto, those things aren't as bad as we tend to make them. This old tent, this fleshly bag that we carry around may get hurt, but we don't have to spend our lives protecting a rotten bag of bones that is going to end up in the ground no matter what we do. You can eat a good diet, you can exercise, and you're still going to die. Instead, it's my hope that we spend our life living for something different that we don't spend our life trying to save our life, that we spend our life trying to lose our life and to give it over to Christ, no matter what it costs. It's my hope that we would spend our life living for him and obeying him no matter what it costs because that is the reward, that glorious reward that when we meet him and when we see him and he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, that is what we are working for. Not the praise of men, not the success, not the comfort. All these things are a shadow compared to the surpassing glory that is available to us on the day of Christ. And Jude is reminding his people of all these truths, like you're going to be kept safe because they're going to be facing a very difficult situation in this letter. They're going to be facing a situation that is uncomfortable, to say the least, and they're going to be facing a situation that is still, to this day, 2,000 years later, uncomfortable for us. So he's reminding them of this, as a way of helping them, as a way of protecting them. So what I want us to do now is I want us to go back to Jude chapter, or Jude, there's one chapter. I want us to go back to Jude verse 3, and I want us to look at the purpose of this letter in light of the beautiful truth that we've already learned, and I want us to see what Jude is telling us as believers that we are called to do. So let's look at verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every attempt to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now there is so much beautiful truth in this one verse that we're not going to be able to exhaust it. You're probably glad of that. But we're going to go through four things tonight from this verse that I think are absolutely incredible. And the first of those is we're going to look at why Jude actually wrote this letter. We've talked about the history and the context, but now we're going to talk about why Jude wrote the letter. We're going to talk about what does it actually mean that we are called to contend. What does that word mean? It's not a common English word that we often use. What are we called to contend for? And the last one, which we will only be able to go over briefly, is how do we contend? We're going to talk about what does it mean to contend, what are we contending for, and how do we do it? And I think these things will be very important for us. So the first one, why did Jude write this letter? 
Jude describes the reason here. He said, I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, but I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend. What Jude is saying is that he wanted to write a different letter. He was actively working on another project, probably a theological treatise. Maybe it was a practical devotional. I'm not sure, but I know that he was working on something that had to do with our common salvation. And he was eagerly, actively, with all of his faculties working on this project because he wanted to gift his church with an understanding of their salvation. And this was the project he's working on. I wouldn't be surprised if you go to Israel and you happened upon a, a pot in the ground and, it, and just so happens that Jude's exegetical study notes are still in there from this project. But he didn't write that letter. He didn't get to get to the place where he could write that, and we get a picture, a better picture of why that happens in Jude verse 4. He says, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They're ungodly persons who crept into the church. They're people who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. They're the ones that crept into the church. They're the ones who deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. They crept into this church. So what Jude is saying here is that savage wolves have come into the church these are men who are condemned by the Lord. These are men who are ungodly and who pervert the grace of God. And Jude said that while he wanted to write this other letter, he couldn't. The church needed him to write something different. The church needed him to write what we have in our Bibles. This letter that we have is the, is the plan B letter of Jude, but it was the plan A letter from God. He wrote this book because he had to. He wrote this book because the church was in desperate need and they needed this letter. That's the first reason he wrote the book. The second reason he wrote the book is because Jude operates under an assumption that is difficult for Americans. It is difficult for Westerners. It is difficult for American Christians. Jude operates under the assumption that when the church is attacked, we cannot stand idly by. We can't. We can't just go in our closets and pray about it. We can't just stick our heads in the sand and say, God, you're going to have to deal with it. When wolves come into the church, when the pure gospel of Jesus Christ is being attacked, Jude is saying that we have to do something. Jude is saying that we must. We must contend for the gospel. And he even goes a step further and he says that we must contend for it earnestly with all our energy and effort. And that leads to the third reason why Jude wrote this book. It's because truth is at stake. Truth was at stake back then. Truth is at stake back or now. If Christians do not stand up and defend the gospel of Jesus Christ, then wolves will come in and they will overtake the church. And this is all throughout church history. We see this. In the modern world, we have seen this even happening before our very eyes. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Brown, Chicago, Columbia, all places that were designed and instituted to train up pastors. But because no one stood up to contend for the truth, because no one had enough guts to stand against the error, these places are no longer places of the truth of God. Brown University, just as one example, was founded. It's a Rhode Island university. It was founded by a group of Baptist pastors. Little history about the American colonies. Uh, the Baptists were always a weird sort of people. Uh, I'm a Baptist, so I can say that. 
And the Baptists uh, got on the Massachusetts Bay Colony people's nerves and they were banished to Rhode Island. So Rhode Island in some ways was the prison colony of the United States. And the Baptists, when they got there, wanted to start their own college. And they wanted to start their own college that taught the truth of scripture. And they wanted a, a college that would raise up ministers. And they got a council of Baptist ministers together to found this, this uh, college right in the heart of Providence. Providence named for the providence of God. Today, Brown University is home as of 2014 to one of the longest running and most well attended uh, annual orgies on a college campus. It is a large event held by the Queer Alliance of Brown. It's an event called the Sex Power God Festival and it was dedicated to utter depravity, licentiousness, and total depravity. The college itself had to shut it down because the folks at Brown who don't believe in God thought that they had went too far. And that's not one isolated event at Brown. It's the same things you can find at Harvard, Yale, and others when universities that are founded on biblical truth decide to stop fighting for it, they slip further and further away generation after generation until they are completely gone into the kind of perversions that will make you cringe. Mainline denominations are no different in America. The Presbyterian Church, the PCUSA, I say I'm a Baptist, I also really love the Presbyterian denomination, and the Presbyterian denomination has its roots all the way back to the Reformation. These are men like John Calvin, John Knox, B.B. Warfield, Charles Hodge, maybe these names don't mean anything, but these are men of God in church history who love the Lord, men who stood for the truth. John Calvin, it is said that one day men who did not believe, did not love the Lord came to take communion and he said, you can put a sword in my face, you can kill me if you want, but you will not take communion on my watch. This is a man who stood for truth. This is a man until the day that he died and loved the Bible and loved truth and yet now the PCUSA is one of the more liberal denominations in America and now joyfully allows anyone of any sexual orientation to all ranks within the church. Practicing or non-practicing, it doesn't matter. How is it that this great denomination that came out of the Reformation has become so morally bankrupt that the only thing they struggle with is struggling on what new kind of error they're going to give themselves to? How is that possible? because they stopped contending. They stopped fighting for the truth of God. And we would be utterly foolish as evangelicals if we thought that we were immune to this. If the true church of Christ in America does not stand up against error, fast forward a few decades and the only thing that will be left will be a shell of what it is today, heresy at the worst. It will be nothing like it is today, and it will fall into the same pattern that all throughout history church has fallen into. They deny the truth, they hate the truth, and then they fall into sexual perversion. It's happened too many times. We are not immune. Jude is writing to a sleepy church and telling them it is time to wake up. He's not encouraging them to get fat on their calling, or to get comfortable on their status, or to become complacent in the fact that Jesus is keeping them. 
He's not calling them to use God's mercy, peace, and love as an excuse. He's reminding them of who they are because they must do something. They must contend. We must do something. Well, if we're going to do something, we need to know what it is that we're supposed to do. So that's why I want us to now talk about what does it mean that we are to contend. If all of us are called to contend, if all of us are called to stand up against the onslaught of error, then what is it that that requires? The Greek word that Jude uses, it's a really fun word to say, so try to memorize it. It will will thrill you to no end, I promise you. Epagonitsomai. Epagonitsomai. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament that this word is used, epagonizomai. But the root word is actually used quite often. Ep, at the beginning of epagonizomai, is a multiplier or it's an amplifier. So Jude is amplifying the meaning of this word. Epagonizomai, without the ep, is used often in the New Testament. Paul uses this frequently. And when Jude says, like the, new, the NASB translates it, to contend earnestly, apagonizomai just means to contend. Now, again, this is the only time this word is amplified. The majority usage in the New Testament is apagonizomai. Now, it may be helpful to go through a little bit of the definition to give some more color and shade to the word. The Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament says, apagonitsumai means to exert intense effort on behalf of something for the benefit of the larger group, meaning that we, if we're going to contend for truth, we're to give effort towards it. We're to give effort towards contending for truth, and it's for the good of the church, for the larger group. Another lexicon puts it this way, apagonitsumai means to continue the attack. To not stop fighting until the battle is over. It essentially means to fight and keep on fighting, if you were to read that idiomatically. Now, I want to tell a little bit of the history of this so you can see how the word kind of came into being. The word actually started as a noun way back in the Hellenistic period of Greek literature, and it just meant the place that we gather. It just meant the assembly place. It meant the place where everybody shows up. Now, how did a word that means the assembly place turn out to be all-out war fighting like gladiators? Glad you asked. In Greek culture, where people gathered was the games. Where people gathered was the fights. So when gladiators came to fight, people showed up. So the word subtly began changing from the place that we gather to the place that we watch the fight And then when the verb came into the language, it meant to fight. It meant to struggle. It meant to contend. And it had an aspect of it that meant to do this until the job is finished. Just like a gladiator would not stop fighting until the battle was over. If he did, he would lose his head. An NFL example, because the NFL works really great in sermon illustrations, Uh, To win a game is to continue playing the game every down, every quarter, every, every yard. Imagine a cornerback in the fourth quarter of a game who just so happens to decide to be lazy. Tom Brady throws an immaculate perfect pass. The game is won, and the cornerback has to hang his head in shame because he played a hard game for the whole game, but one play, he let his guard down, and the game is over. 
To contend means to exert the same effort consistently from the beginning until the end. It's not to let your guard down at the end. One lapse in effort could have disastrous consequences. Now, this word, apagonizomai, came into the New Testament vocabulary very early. It, it became in some of the earliest writings of Paul, and we're going to talk about a few of the examples that Paul uses. He says in 1 Corinthians 9.25, everyone who apagonizomais, or everyone who competes in the games, exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable one. What Paul is saying is that Christian life is not meant to be easy, it's meant to be a fight. There's no such thing, Paul would say, as a couch potato Christian. Life as a Christian is dedicated, it's relentless, it's focused, it's, it's the same level of dedication that an Olympian athlete would, would think or would go through. Imagine Michael Phelps or imagine any of the other Olympians, what rigorous effort that they went through to get to where they are, the diet that they went through to get to where they are. Paul is saying that everyone who competes in the games exercises these disciplines for a silly wreath. But yet we, apagonizomai, we contend for an imperishable reward that can never be taken from us. So Paul's comparing us, the Christian, to the Olympian. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, he says, We proclaim him, that's Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, apagonizomai, striving, according to his power, which mightily works in me. So what Jude is saying here, or not Jude, Jude amplifies the word. Paul is saying this word means striving. And what he's saying is that preaching is an all-out war, and he trains for it, he prepares for it, he fights for it, he strives for it, he executes it with grave seriousness, and his work is done in the power of God. It's according to his power, which works in Paul. So what Paul is saying is not only do we take our Christian life with the level of seriousness that an Olympian athlete would, that we rest and trust in the fact that we don't have the energy and the effort to do that, so we need God and we need His power at work in us in order to do it. That's what Paul's saying. If you want to contend, you need the power of God. Later in that letter, in uh, chapter 4, verse 12, this is Paul talking to the Colossians. He says, Epaphras is always apagonizomai, laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. This word is translated laboring here. This man, Epaphras, is a member of the congregation who helps Paul. And what it's saying is, is that Paul's saying he gets it. His life is an all-out struggle. He's leaning into the power of God, but he's not throwing off little pop shots into heaven. He is going to war in prayer because, and he's fighting like a dog in prayer for the spiritual life of others. So look at how Paul has already laid out for us a case on what contending means. It means we fight for our faith. We fight for the faith of others, and we know that the fight really is by the power of God. It's a beautiful, rich theology that Paul is unpacking. In 1 Timothy 1, 7 and 10, he says, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, for it is for this that we, apagonizomai, we labor and we strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. 
What a beautiful statement that is. He's saying that we contend. He's saying that we fight. He's saying that we go to war with our flesh so that we can have godliness in our life because we know the living God. Paul is saying because we know who God is, it produces within us this kind of effort to contend for the faith, to contend for godliness. What Paul is saying is that knowing the living God does not produce half-hearted effort. What he's saying is when you really know who God is, when you really catch a glimpse of him and his beauty and his splendor and his glory, the most natural thing for you to do is to want to go contend for your faith, contend in prayer, contend for godliness. These are natural things for the Christian. Robert Murray McShane is one of my favorite Puritans. He, uh, he says it really well. He says, when you gaze at the sun, it makes everything else dark. When you taste honey, everything else is bland. So when your soul feeds on Jesus, it takes away the sweetness of fleshly pleasure. What Mary McShane is saying is that when you really know who God is, the most natural consequence of your life is that you want to seek him, that you want to know him, that you want to that you want to plead with him, you want to pray to him, you want to exercise discipline and grow in godliness to him. Knowing who God is does not produce Christian apathy. Knowing who God is does not produce Christian lethargy. It produces Christian action. Knowing who God is. Our Christian action doesn't save us. Paul would never argue that. Our salvation produces the action, not the action to salvation. In case Paul hasn't made his argument clear, he does so in 1 Timothy 6, 12. He says, but flee these things, that's ungodliness. You, man of God, and pursue righteousness, pursue godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness, and apagonizomai, fight the good faith, and take hold of eternal life to which you were called. What Paul is saying is that our Christian life is a fight for the good faith. It is not what concert-style churches have misled people into believing. It is not healthy, wealthy, and successful. It is not a misguided confidence that produces complacency and consumerism. It is the Christian life lived rightly with a right view of God causes us to chase after Him and to long to know Him. And it produces action that propels us towards Him. That is what contending means. It's the sustained, lifelong action that propels you to God. And it's motivated by God. It's motivated by the love of God. But it is what we're all called to do. Now again, I want to be clear. We are not fighting, contending, struggling to be saved. We are fighting because we know the living God and we want more of him. We want to see more of him. We want to experience more of him. We want to know him deeper than we currently know him. That's a fight worth fighting. Who could fight to earn their salvation? Who could reach up to the heavens and say, God, you must rescue me because I'm so good. But with a God that is that good, experiencing him is worth fighting for. Experiencing him and knowing him is worth giving all of our energy and all of our effort. So that at the end of Paul's life, the last, some of the last sentences he says, he says, I have apogonizomide, I have fought the good faith, I have finished the race, and I've kept faith. 
Paul's not saying that I got to the end of my life and I was successful. Paul's sitting in a jail cell. Paul's sitting in a room with scars up and down his body, with broken bones that have never healed correctly, with relationships that have abandoned him and broken him. And on the surface, he's on death row. This man's not successful. He doesn't have a white picket fence. He doesn't have a really bountiful 401k. He doesn't have a vacation home or anything else that we would value. But Paul says that he finished well. Paul says in abject poverty and on death row, I finished well. And it's because Paul did not define success by American standards. Paul said, what brought me joy is that I fought and I did not stop fighting to know my God. And my life is, a, is an instance or an image of that. He's saying that all my life I fought to know God and it was the greatest fight that I could ever engage in. Paul, an old man, gives us great confidence that we now, who are still young, as we approach our deaths, what will we say at the end of our life that we actually fought for? Will we say that we fought for God or will we say that we fought for a vacation home or finding seashells on a beach somewhere in Sarasota, Florida? Or will we say that we fought to know God? That's what Paul's getting at. Now, when we get to the book of Jude, we've just talked about what Paul uses this word, my Jude takes it to another level. Jude says that I want you to epagonizomai, which means I want you to contend earnestly. This is the only time in the New Testament this word is amplified, and Jude is using it here to describe the kind of fight that he is calling believers in his church to engage in. He's calling them to contend for the faith in a culture that loves error, and he's calling them to contend earnestly because the situation is desperate. And we're going to be exploring all of this in the next several weeks, so I'm not going to treat it exhaustively here, but what I do want us to see is that true truths that we have left for us today that Paul, or that Jude is teaching us, is number one, there is the content of what we contend for, so we're going to find out what it is that we contend for, and the second, Paul's, or Jude is going to teach us how we contend. So we're going to talk about what Jude is calling us to contend for and how we contend. In verse 3, Jude starts with the what. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. For the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Paul talks about how to contend for your personal faith and how to grow in godliness by fighting for your faith. Jude is talking about the faith. That was once for all given down by the saints. Jude is talking about the Christian faith. Jude is talking about the delivered and handed down gospel. Jude is talking about the scriptures. Jude is talking about truth and orthodoxy and doctrine. He is saying that I want you to contend for the faith, the collection of truth that was handed down from Jesus Christ to his apostles by the Holy Spirit, written down by the apostles into the New Testament. And that is what I'm calling you to contend for, to contend for the pages of scripture that are in this book because that is also a fight that is worth fighting for. It is a fight worth fighting for to fight for your faith and it is certainly worth fighting for to fight for the faith. That's what Jude is saying. It's not a physical fight. 
goodness knows the history of the Christian and the Rome-ish church have erred inexcusably in thinking that sometimes this was a physical fight. It is not. We do not pick up sticks or stones and we do not pick up guns and rounds. But we also cannot stand idly by when wolves come into the church and undermine the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't. In Jude's time, men were creeping in and they were undermining the scripture. They were undermining godliness. They were undermining grace. They were denying the totality of who Jesus was. And Jude called those believers to contend. Now, I think the same is true for us. There are they're actually, in my opinion, I think the situation is worse. Because in Jude's context, it was one congregation who was being attacked by one group of people. You go on the internet, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wolves that are out there undermining the truth of the gospel. So I think it's worse today. And if you look at the fact that technology gives anyone with an opinion and ability to spew their nonsense on YouTube and Twitter and everything else, I think that the situation is worse when you look at the fact that heretical groups on major television networks like CBN and Daystar and other false doctrine profligators, when you look at the fact that megachurch, megachurches who don't preach the gospel can, can on a Sunday reach 40,000 people in Texas, but then on the very next day can upload their messages on, on the internet and reach millions. They can reach millions of people. Jude never had to encounter an infiltration like that. So-called worship bands who mischaracterize the holiness of God, release albums on Spotify, go around and tour on concert, and yet they're undermining true and right worship. We live in an era of unprecedented ability for wolves to be able to totally feast on sheep entirely unabated. And where's the church? Where's the church? Jude tells us that we must contend because wolves will come in because they have an insatiable appetite for the sheep. Because the faith that we hold dear is at stake. Jude is not saying that it's possible that wolves will come into the church. Jude is not saying that, that it's likely that truth is going to be challenged. So long as we live in this world and so long as Satan exists, the truth of God will be challenged and it is up to the church to contend, not lay down and die. If American Christianity doesn't wake up, I would say in less than a hundred years, the only expression of Christianity that this country is going to have to offer is outright heresy. There will be no pure expression if the church doesn't contend. History verifies this. If the church does not contend, it will fall into error and it will fall into disarray, delusion, and ultimately it won't exist. If Jude were alive today, I think he would think the situation in our country is dire. Let's go through a few statistics. The average American Christian believes that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. This is a study that Ligonier Ministries did, and when I say average, I mean slightly above average. 
We live in a day when the liberal agenda is overtaking churches like the Lutherans and the Methodists and the Episcopals and the United Church of Christ and all of these denominations. We live in a day when the average Christian believes that God accepts worship from any religion so long as it is sincerely held and believed. From the people polled in this study, it doesn't matter if you worship Buddha, it doesn't matter if you worship Allah, it doesn't matter if you worship one of the 33 million gods in Hinduism, so long as you are sincere, I think the Lord will cover you. These are Christians who've been overtaken by error. We live in a day when the Word of Faith movement and Mormonism are the fastest growing sects of Christianity. Mormonism that denies who God is. Mormonism that says Jesus and, and Satan are brothers. The Word of Faith movement which says if you think it, you can have it, and God has to give you whatever you want. These are the fastest growing sects of Christianity. In Africa, the Word of Faith movement is about to overtake the entire continent so that there's no faithful expression of the gospel left in Africa. It, it will happen if we don't contend. Where's the church? Why have we stopped fighting? I think it's easy in American culture to say, well, when we fight, it doesn't feel good. But isn't this worth fighting for? This is not a battle that we lay down and die. This is not a battle that we put on our, our sweet Sister Mary Sunday morning Christian hat. We pray like Paul. We ask God to move, but yet we stand on the truth of the word of God. We must contend. It's not an option. I've heard it said this way. The best way to spot a fake is to know the original. I think a part of contending is knowing the word of God so well that you can spot the errors before they become big, before they become pervasive. Jude's saying that when we're contending for the truth, we must know the truth. We must fight to know the truth. And we must make it a matter of earnest significance in our life. The first moment that we wake up in the morning ought to be an earnest, grave necessity to get into the Word of God, to know God, to know Him and His Word. If you're not a morning person, at some point in the day, get into the Word of God so that you'll be prepared when the wolf comes. Which leads to our final question. We know now what we're to contend for. We're to contend for the faith. We're to contend for truth. We're to contend for the gospel because wolves will attack it. So we know what Jude is saying. That's what we're supposed to contend for. Now we need to ask the question, how? How do we do this as Christians? How do we contend? And I think Jude tells us in several practical truths. We're gonna, again, we're going to go over this over the next several weeks. But I want to give us four things that Jude tells us on how do we contend. If you want to write these down, that's great. If you don't, that's fine. I can post them online. But four things we're going to talk about on how Jude calls us as Christians to contend for the truth of God. The first is we contend for truth. We've already talked a little bit about this in verse 3, but in verse 17 and, and verse 20 it says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Building yourself up 
on your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. What Jude is saying is one of the primary ways that you will contend is to contend for the truth. And the way that you do that is to remember the truth. Well, how do you remember the truth? We have to learn it. And how do you learn the truth? Well, you actually have to read it. And how do you read the truth? You actually have to open the Bible. This is not complicated. I'm just saying that there's a logical sequence that we must be in the Word of God if we're going to know the truth and if we're going to contend for it. We must have a steady and consistent diet on the Word of God in order to be able to contend. That's the first way we contend for truth. The second way is that we contend against error. Verses 4 through 16 unpack this. In fact, the whole book is an exposition of this. But I want to go into just a few truths that I want you to have in summary so that you'll have them for the weeks ahead. The first thing I want us to beware of is we need to know what heresy actually means. I was shocked when I looked on multiple different theological journals, websites, dictionaries, things that I have in my own library at the ambiguity of what the word heresy actually means. Some people say that everything is a heresy. If you don't believe in every single thing that I believe, then you're a heretic. You know, almost like they're playing pin the tail on the heretic game. That's some. Others would say almost nothing is heresy and almost nothing is essential. I think that there is an actual moderate stance on this, and this is something that came out of the Westminster Confessions of Faith. Heresy is when you go against a fundamental teaching of the Bible. It's when you not only teach a fundamental, her or fundamental uh, truth that goes against the Bible, it's that you are leading others astray into your error. Fundamental truths of the Bible might be the view of God and who He is, or the biblical view of Christ, or His humanity and His divinity. Uh, a biblical view would be atonement, how are we saved, or grace, what did it cost, and what can we do to earn it? Nothing, it's grace. Biblical views that, that you can be a heretic on are things like justification and sanctification and glorification, meaning that God declared you righteous, justification, He's working righteousness into you, sanctification, and He is going to prepare you for an eternity of living with the only righteous one, that's glorification. Those are core, fundamental Christian doctrines. Another doctrine, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and His office. This is a core doctrine. The way we parse out all of the, the different elements of it, you know, we can differ on some of those things, but the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Savior, of Scripture, of inspiration, of sufficiency. There, there are doctrines that are so core to Christianity that if you lose them, you lose the faith. That's what heresy is. When you go against that doctrine, you've lost the faith. Now, I say that because, again, I think there's a tendency to over-heresy in the Reformed Church. To overly point your finger and say, heretic. Definitely a heretic. That guy, worse than a heretic. I think that this is, is common in the Reformed Church. We're not talking about minor doctrinal differences like your view of Revelation or whether you can eat meat or not eat meat as a Christian. These are not minor doctrines. You're not going to look at our sister Lauren, who's a vegan, and say, heretic. Sorry, I had to. <laughs> it was just right there. I just couldn't help it. You're not going to do that because it's not a minor, or that, that's a minor doctrine. 
essential, non-essential doctrines don't make heretic. We use this word very carefully. We use this word with wisdom. And we use this word when core doctrines of the Christian church have been thrown away. Now, that's the kind of situation that Jude is calling us to contend against. And I think that Jude gives us five things that will help us. We're, we're talking about four ways to contend. There's five ways you contend against error. So don't get this confused in your mind. We're talking about contending against error. But there's five things I want to share with you. Number one, know the word of God. If you're contending against error, you need to know the original. The second is do your part to keep this out of the church. Jude is talking to a congregation of people and he's saying that it's not enough for you to know the truth of God for yourself. You must help defend your brother and sister. You must help guard the gates of the church so that error does not come in. We must protect others. It's key characteristic of family life. If you're in a family, you love your family. You protect your family. You lay down your life for your family. That's what Jude is saying. The third is to address error directly with truth. I don't know how many times I've been in a discussion in the past where someone says, well, Kendall, I don't agree with you. And I say, okay, why do you not agree with me? And they say, well, you know, I, just, I, don't, it just, I don't like the way it makes me feel. Okay, well, what does Scripture say? And that is the question that we must ask. When we're talking about error and heresy, and when we're talking about contending for the faith and for the truth, we must begin to ask the fundamental question. We must make it really central to our vocabulary. What does the Word of God say? When someone says, I think that homosexuality is right, you say, what does the Word of God say? When someone says that I think this particular sin is okay, what does the Word of God say? When they say that God didn't offer us grace in Christ, what does the Word of God say? We are not called to share our opinions. We are to stand in the shadow of the Holy Word of God. We have no authority unless He gives us the authority. We are called not to share our intelligence and our arrogance and our puffed up pride about how much we know. We are humble slaves who stand on the Word of God. So we must confront error with truth. But, for all my truthy people, we must address error with mercy and with peace and with love. Jude does not give us permission to launch a truth war. Jude does not give us permission with all of our zeal and pride and all of our self-righteousness to sit safely behind a computer and drop truth bombs. Jude prays that the church would have mercy, peace, and love multiplied to them so that they could contend with mercy, peace, and love. So while we must be tough on heretics, because there's wolves in the church, and like we said last week, you don't, you don't pet a wolf, you shoot a wolf. I'm just saying, that's what you do. It's unloving to let a wolf live in the sheep pen. We show mercy to other believers who are struggling. We show mercy and love and peace to those who are not yet as far along in their doctrine. We must be discerning. In the same vein, the fifth thing I would say is that contending for the truth cannot be absent of biblical character. If you have to be self-righteous to contend, you are not contending biblically. If you have to be arrogant to contend, you are not contending biblically. 
Christian contending is always consistent with Christian character. Now, look at what Jude does. He calls out people in this text who are self-righteous. And if you think that you're the guy who can just hurt people and rebuke people and be insensitive to people and stir up conflict in the community of God, I want to give you a very strong word of rebuke from the Bible. Proverbs 6.19 says that God hates the man who stirs up disunity in the community of God. God hates that man. We talk about fearing the Lord. Well, don't launch your truth war with self-righteousness and pride and think that God is going to be up in heaven saying, Amen, brother, patting you on the back and, and pumping fist bumps with you. He's not. Contending must be motivated out of love for the church and love for Jesus' bride. It must, be con it must be rooted in love for truth and love for the souls of men and women who are struggling. Jude says in this text, he calls the deceivers and the wolves in this church, he calls them grumblers, which means contending cannot be about complaining. It cannot be, oh, I cannot believe what little doctrine that they know. I can't believe they just don't get it. They don't understand. They're such simpletons. You're in sin. If you do that, you're in sin. That's not biblical contending. Contending does not lead to arrogance and pride. It doesn't lead to self-righteousness. It leads to a humble desire for your brother and sister to learn the truth of God. Contending must be done with Christian character. Okay, that's the second, contending against error, and we talked about five things in that section. The third way we can contend is we can contend for others, and I'm going to go through these really quickly, and you're like, yes. We contend for, sorry, we contend for ourselves. In verse 21 of this book, he says, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Essentially what he's saying is, is that when truth is disregarded, you must contend for your own personal spiritual life because it's almost like the example of the plane. You can't help anyone else if you don't put the oxygen mask on first. If you're called to be a faithful member of the community who helps other people contend, you must be contending for your own faith. You must be contending for truth. How hypocritical and self-righteous would it be to say, you know, brother, you're in error when you're doing all of these things over here. What Jude is saying in verse 21 is we have to contend for ourselves first. We have to fight for faithfulness in our own life before we will be equipped and prepared to help others. That obviously leads to the next one. We must contend for others. In verse 22 and 23, he says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. These are believers who are doubting the, the truths of God. Have mercy on them. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. What Jude is saying is that once we've contended for the truth of God in our own life, we have a responsibility to love and care for others in the community. It's not okay to know that someone in the church is struggling and to do nothing about it. That's what Jude is saying. The final point is contending with both fear and with hope. So, so far we've talked about that we contend for truth. We've talked about that we contend against error. We talked about that we contend for our own faith and our own walk with God, and we contend for others. The last thing is we do is we contend with fear, but we ultimately contend with hope. In verse 23, Jude says, On some have mercy with fear, 
hating even the garment polluted by the flesh, meaning be careful if someone is so deeply entrenched in error that you helping them is going to cause you to fall into temptation. Maybe you're not the right person to help them. I knew a guy who was struggling with pornography and another guy tried to help him and that guy ended up falling into sin because in the accountability sessions, the details of those conversations was tempting him. There's other examples of this. If you are struggling to help someone and you are being tempted while you're helping someone, have someone else help that person. That's, that's what Jude is saying. Contend with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. You don't want to fall into sin as a result of helping someone. And in verse 24 and 25, he tells us how to contend with hope. This to me is, I think, two of the most beautiful verses in the entire Bible. When you've contended for truth, when you've contended against error, when you've contended for yourself and for your brother, and when you've had a reverential fear of your own walk with the Lord, it says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forever. Throughout the whole book, Jude is saying that there's a fight that needs to happen for truth. And Christians must stand up and we must fight for truth. And we must fight against error. And we must combat it with the truth of the word of God. And we must be gracious and we must be all these things. At the end of the day, we know that the Lord is going to keep us from stumbling. And we know that the Lord is in control. And we have an example of how to do this. We've just been taught by Jude how to do this, but we have an example. Look at Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him, he contended for you. He fought for you. He climbed Mount Calvary for you, and he didn't give up. Remember we said contending means fighting into the bitter end. Jesus fought into the bitter end for you so that you could contend for him. Let's pray.